Good evening. I want to just uh, take a moment to thank Pastor Brian and all of you for giving us this uh, opportunity. <coughs> it's an emotional day for us as well, knowing it's our last day here, or last Sunday here. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak and preach in a church that I love, that we love, and that has meant so much to me and my wife over these past um, few years. You all have made a huge impact on us, our lives, and our spiritual walk will never be forgotten. And it is with mixed emotions that I preach tonight as um, it will be our last Sunday. We'll be visiting my family in Georgia next week and then um, floating up the U-Haul and moving the middle of the following week. So, um, But before I get too emotional, let's turn to uh, Colossians 2, uh, 6-7. And some of you know, uh, Chris and I have been hosting a, a Bible study for college slash young professional um, in our church. And on Tuesday nights, we've been hosting that in our home. We've been walking through Colossians, and this is as far as we've gotten in about a year and a half. So um, tonight, I'm going to try to get through two whole verses. If you didn't know any better, you'd think uh, Dr. Payne had me for preaching class or something. But let's, uh, let's pray really quick, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for this, for this night. Thank you for this opportunity for me personally. Um, God, we speak for me and my wife as, as well as we just thank you for this church and what, uh, what it has meant to us, how it has impacted us. God, we thank you for leading us here. And we pray that you would just continue to bless the body at Fisherville and that they would remain in your will, that they would walk in Christ, rooted and built up and established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. As we turn to your word, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that um, you would remove me, that your spirit would work. I pray the same for everyone here, that, um, that you would just remove um, any distractions, any... Um, thoughts or um, things that need to be done, God, that we would be focused on your word. If you would just take a moment where you are and just um, pray for me that, that, uh, that God would remove me from the situation and that um, he would speak through me. Now, if you would just um, pray that he would remove any distractions from your mind as well, that all our hearts and minds would be focused on him and his son. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that you speak to us tonight and that we would leave closer to Christ. We pray this in, these things in his name. Amen. So Colossians 2, verses 6 to 7. I'll go ahead and read those quick. It says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Several years ago, before I even thought about moving to Kentucky, I was working at a local hospital back in, back home in Georgia. I worked as a pharmacy tech, and uh, I've joked in the past that I was a legal drug dealer, but we won't have to go there. Um, but so I was a pharmacy tech, and after delivering medicines one day to one of the floors, I was walking back to get on the elevator, and there was this man at the end of the hallway. I, I walked down the whole length in the hallway, and there was this man at, at the end looking out a window. And as I started walking down the hallway, I noticed that he was looking at me. And he stared at me the entire time I was walking down the hallway, and I walked past him, and just before I got on the elevator, he, he did this whole thing, watched me go by. And right before I got on the elevator, he looked at me and said, you're Gary McCrickerson, ain't you? I've never seen this guy before in my life. I've never seen him since. Um, but he had me dead pegged for who I was. And the way he recognized me, he said, I walk just like my father. He could tell whose son I was by the way I was walking. And so he knew exactly who I was. And by extension, um, or he knew exactly who my father was. And by extension, who I was in him. And I get a lot of characteristics from my father. And if we think about it, I think all of us can say that. We get a lot of characteristics from our family. Some good, some not so good. My wife can tell you that I, I get uh, some good and some not so good characteristics from my dad um, and my mom as well. Um, but, <clears throat> but I got them without asking for them. We get those characteristics from our family without asking, without um, meriting, without earning. They're passively given to us. They're passed on simply through genetics. And particularly in this hospital story, I wasn't necessarily trying to walk like my dad. I, I certainly wasn't trying to earn any favor or merit with him by walking a certain way. Um, or the man in the window or anyone else for that matter. I wasn't trying to earn anything or up up myself or show off how good I could walk like my dad. I was simply walking in my normal, long-strided, fast-paced way. And if you've ever seen me work in a hospital, um, I was, people would rave about how fast I walked. Um, my, my wife said I needed to join the Olympic uh, uh, speed walking team. Um, <clears throat> But this was a manner simply received from my father, and it was ingrained in me. And just as I walk in light of what I received from my dad, so Paul in these, in these verses is encouraging the Colossian Christians and us by extension to walk in light of what we have received, or more accurately, who we have received. How we receive Christ then becomes the basis for our walking in him. The two verses we're looking at tonight are the major hinge point in the letter to the Colossians. They serve as the bridge between the high praise for who Christ is and what he's done in the first part of the letter to the commands and admonitions that are to follow. As such, these verses look both backward to what Paul has already said and forward to what he's going to say. But it's appropriate before diving in too deep to give just a brief background of the context for the letter as a whole. The letter was written to the church at Colossae. Specifically, Paul addresses it to the saints and faithful brothers. 
He stresses the familiar, <clears throat> excuse me, familial and corporate nature of these believers over and over again. He makes it clear that the truths and admonitions are intended for a corporate body of believers. Paul had never visited the church personally, at least at this point. Um, however, it was founded by Epaphras, as we see in chapter 1, verse 7. Yet Paul feels a deep connection with the church, which can be seen throughout the letter. He commends their faith and love. Apparently, the young church was starting out well, readily accepting and cherishing the gospel. Yet, as with any church, Paul's teaching and teachers are in a... In or an inevitable danger, and apparently it had begun to threaten the Colossian church at this time. We don't know how widespread it might have been or the exact nature of what was being taught. At different places, Paul alludes to human philosophy and tradition, idolatry, angel worship, um, the observance of food laws and festivals. Where Colossae was located on a major trade route meant that it was likely a very eclectic and syncretistic city, as it would have been exposed to many different philosophies and religions from all over the world. Thus, Paul's goal was to stress the supremacy and centrality of Jesus for individual Christians and the church. He constantly attempts to reorient the hearts and minds of these Colossian believers on the reality of who Christ is, what he has done, and the ultimate truth of the gospel. With that in mind, let us dive into these verses and the first point of this message, which is receiving Christ truly. The first word here points us back to what has already been said about Christ thus far in the letter. As the saying goes, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to know what it's there for. And so, in order to understand what, what Paul is saying here, he's um, referring to what he's already said in all of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So when he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, we must look back to what has already been said to determine what this receiving is all about. And so we ask, what does it mean that Christ, that Christ was received by the Colossians? This question is vital because of our understanding of what it means to receive Christ reflects our beliefs about who he is and impacts how we are to walk in him. Thus, in examining what Paul has said thus far, we can glean several things about what, what it means to receive Christ truly. So if you will look back with me just really quick in chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2. In verse 4, he says he's received by faith. Verse 13, he's received as king and as the beloved son of God. Verse 14, he's received as redeemer. Verse 15, he is received as the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. Where Adam and Eve failed as the image bearer of God, Jesus did not. He perfectly reflects the true image of the Father in all his characteristics and attributes. Moreover, as firstborn over all creation, he holds all rights and privileges of ownership over all of creation as the eternal heir of the Father. Furthermore, to declare these things about Jesus is also to declare that he is God. Paul is equating Jesus with God. No one else could perfectly image the Father. No one else could be counted as co-heir or, or as an heir over all of creation other than God himself. 
So uh, Paul is equating Jesus um, with the Father. In verse 16, Jesus is to be received as the one by whom and for whom all things were created. Everything from the smallest part of the smallest molecule to the largest planets and galaxies and everything in between was created by him and for him. And this also includes us. When's the last time you thought about the fact that you were created for Christ? It's a sobering thought. Have you ever thought about the implications of that? For believers, this is very comforting. For unbelievers, not so much. Um, for unbelievers, this is a scary and even infuriating thought. Ironically, for the same reason, scary and infuriating because they will ultimately have to give an account to him. If there is an ultimate authority, an ultimate uh, God who we must give an account for, that is scary for an unbeliever. But at the same time, for the unbeliever who wishes to be the master of their own destiny, to run the, their life the way they want to, that's infuriating to know that that's not the case, that there is someone who we have to give an account to. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 17, Jesus is to be received as the one who is before all things and the one in whom all things hold together. So not only is he the creator of all things, he is the eternal sustainer of all things. Think about all the intricacies and complexities in the created order, from the amount of oxygen in, our, in the air that we breathe to um, the Earth's distance from the sun, all these things that even make life possible from our very DNA to every breath we take, everything is sustained by Christ. So for the person who is devastated by anxiety, for the one looking for joy in relationships or money, prestige, power, control, status, fill in the blank, know that it is only in Christ where true joy can be found. It is he who sovereignly governs on high, holding all things in his hand. On the, fl on the flip side, this also means realizing that we can do nothing apart from him. Our very breath is granted by him alone. In verse 18, he is to be received as the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and the one who is preeminent in all things. He is the founder of a new humanity, a new people of God. How often do we make the church all about us? How often do we allow our preferences to dictate the depth of our worship? How often do we grumble and complain about tiny, inconsequential things? To receive Christ truly is to receive him as the head of the church. This means that he governs, he leads, he directs, and we do not. In verse 19, Jesus is to be received as the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. Verse 20 to 22 is to be received as the one through whom all things must be reconciled, including us, who are under the curse of sin and death. 
This requires us to acknowledge the fact that reconciliation is necessary. It requires recognizing how sinful we really are. It requires accepting the fact that we can do nothing to remedy this situation on our own and there is no other, no other path to salvation other than, other than through Jesus. In verse 27, he is to be received as the mystery of God and the hope of glory. As Pastor Brian said many times before, we are all hope junkies. We, we will hope in something. But if our hope is in our career, our family, our hobbies, our wealth, or anything else that is not Christ, then we have not received him truly. He alone is our ultimate hope of glory. In chapter 2, verse 3, he is to be received as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul warns the Colossians more than once to be on guard against worldly philosophy and traditions of men or empty deceit. And to be clear, the study of philosophy in itself is not wrong. Um, people throughout history have interpreted this verse to mean that. Um, but throughout history, there are and have been plenty of Christian philosophers whom we should be grateful for, who have encouraged us and uh, strengthened us in faith. Paul is not condemning philosophy in general, which is essentially just thinking hard about something. That's really all philosophy is, thinking hard about something. Um, but he is saying that any philosophy whose focus and goal is not Christ should not be believed. And there are many of these types of philosophies in our day, just as there were then, which we must be on guard against as well. All of these things are summed up in the phrase Paul uses here to describe Jesus. He says in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, he is Christ Jesus the Lord. He is Christ, the anointed of God, the Messiah. He is Jesus, the actual historic Savior who entered into human history and space and time to fulfill God's plan of salvation. And he is the sovereign Lord who rules and reigns over all things, who has purchased us by his blood, and to whom we owe our gratitude, allegiance, and our lives. Essentially, Christ is all in all. He is the focal point of the Christian life. Paul stressed this high view of Christ to the Colossians to combat false teachings that sought to take their focus off of Christ alone and to substitute other objects of worship for means of salvation, either in addition to Christ or in his place altogether. He is stressing the fact that they receive Christ as the only one worthy of worship and honor, their only source of hope and salvation, and the one who is above all other created things because he is, in fact, the one who created them. In fact, to receive Christ in any other way is to not receive him at all. Paul presents this high view of Christ as the antidote to cure the infection that enters the church through false teaching. He is constantly striving to reorient the Colossians back to where their focus should truly be, on the centrality of Christ and the gospel. This leads us to our second point, which revolves around Paul's admonition to walk in Christ. 
the way in which we receive Christ Jesus will inevitably affect our walk with him, as I've said before. If we receive him as a kind of bailout Messiah, who we call on only when we're in trouble, then we have no need to walk in him at any other time. If we receive him as a divine gift giver, and a Santa Claus in the sky, then we'll only look to him when we want something new from him. If we think of him as one of the good old boys, then we will see no need to follow his commands. If he is only a good moral teacher, then there is nothing binding us to obey him. You get the idea of what I'm saying. The way we, the way we, the way we receive Christ impacts the way we walk in him. But Paul, however, is telling the Colossians that as they receive Christ truly and thus salvifically, if that's even a word, I think it is in Georgia's, we can, we can go with that, then this should lead them to walk in step with the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. They are to walk in light of the fact that Jesus is preeminent over all things, that he is redeemer, king, beloved son of God and everything else noted above. In the face of those who would turn them away to worshiping idols or other spiritual beings, as is hinted in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, among other places, they are instead to walk in light of the fact that Jesus is the only one worthy of worship in that, in that completely and totally. When tempted to add anything to the completed work of Christ, such as food laws or circumcision or festivals, as referenced in chapter 2, verse 11 and 16, among other places. They are to remember that it is through Christ alone that they are reconciled to God. When they might be persuaded to subscribe to earthly philosophy or the wisdom of man, they are to reflect on the fact that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Moreover, walking in Christ is not something that can be done only occasionally or when it, whenever they feel like it. The imperative here is strongly durative, meaning that it is a continual walking in him. No matter what they're doing, where they're going, who they're interacting with, they are to walk in him. Paul elaborates on this with four participles. And in the next verse, he explained, and these participles help explain what he means when he says to walk in him. And so the first word we see here is rooted. This harkens back once again to how they receive Christ. The, the Greek word here is in the perfect tense. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Greek word here is in the perfect tense, meaning that it's referring to a definite act or event that has permanent abiding effects. <clears throat> so the Colossians were rooted with Christ at the very moment of their salvation, and they can never be uprooted. It's a one-time event that has abiding effects forever. They're permanently rooted in him. Moreover, the word here is in the passive voice, meaning they're being rooted and they're staying rooted <clears throat> is not something that they play a part in. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Yet the idea here 
is that they would continually be more and more deeply rooted. And it is God who does this as well. They are to sink their roots deeply into Christ, drawing their spiritual nourishment from him alone. When you think about roots on a tree, what purpose do they serve? They, they bring strength. They bring nourishment and life if deeply rooted in good soil. They bring stability. On the other hand, weak, shallow roots lend the tree to be broken and blown over by wind and storms. Roots planted in bad soil do not support life, and eventually the tree will wither and die. And just like a tree, our roots must run deep into Christ. Our spiritual strength, life, and vitality are directly correlated to the depth and vitality of our roots. When we abide in him who is the true vine, we have life and we have it in abundance. When we seek our life elsewhere in relationships, money, status, prestige, we are left with only emptiness, loneliness, and despair. It's as if someone essentially poured poison over our roots so that they're, rather than soaking up the life that is in Christ, they soak up only death. The second participle here is built up, whereas roots run downward, sinking deep into Christ. The participle here refers to building upward from a firm foundation. So we have the downward sinking and the upward uh, building up. It is a present tense, passive voice participle. So it is something that requires, uh, it implies continuous action. But again, it's in the passive voice, so it's not something that we accomplish. It is something that God alone accomplishes through us and in us. The Colossians play no part in it. It is something that is done to them. Both of these participles suggest the idea of more and more, going more and more deeply rooted and being built up more and more in Christ. The third is established. This participle states the outcome of what walking according to the first two describe. It is also in the present tense implying continuity of action in the passive voice, again meaning it's something that is done to us, accomplished by God alone. By continually being rooted and built up in Christ, the Colossians will inevitably be established in the faith. The word here carries the idea of confirm or guarantee or make legally irrevocable. The faith here is in an objective sense. It's referring to the entire body of Christian truth. It's not a subjective um, personal faith. It's it's referring to the gospel, the the truth of Christianity, the the doctrine, the um, theology of what it means to receive Christ truly. Paul is referring to the faith, the the whole body of Christian truth that they were taught. By walking in Christ, Paul's admonition in in chapter 1, verse 23, to continue in the faith and thus prove that they are truly saved is realized, and they are thus confirmed in the faith. Moreover, the truth of the gospel is confirmed in their hearts individually and corporately as they grow in grace. By continually walking in Christ... 
and thus being established in the faith, they are more and more able to recognize and resist any false teaching or any empty deceit, any human philosophy or tradition. And did you notice the phrase that just as they were taught? You know, in order for Christ to be received, the gospel must be taught. Salvation does not come apart from hearing and believing the gospel. Paul commends Epaphras who brought the gospel to the Colossians multiple times. And just as a side note, I can say that it is truly a blessing to sit under such faithful gospel-centered preaching week in and week out. And we should count ourselves, Fisherville should count, count ourselves blessed and grateful. I've uh, told Pastor Brian that many times, uh, leaving, or <coughs> leaving the preaching and the teaching that we received here made our decision all the harder. We were almost in tears again this morning thinking about it. But teaching the gospel is the responsibility of every believer. It's not just Brian, it's not just Jonathan, it's not just the elders or the Sunday school teachers. As Brother Danny has been saying on Wednesday nights, the Great Commission is a command for us all to obey. As we go, we are to be making disciples. We're all to be engaged in teaching the truth. And when we are rooted, when we are built up in Christ and thus established in the faith, this leads to the fourth participle that Paul uses here, abounding. He says abounding in thanksgiving. The word here literally means to overflow. The picture is of a, a river overflowing its banks. If, um, the Jordan River has a, during a, the rainy season, will flood and overflow. And that's, that's kind of the picture that uh, Paul is creating here of a river that can no longer contain the amount of water. It just spews out everywhere. And that's the picture of what uh, the thankfulness and the gratitude and the gratefulness that a Christian should have. The thankfulness of the person who has truly received Christ and now walks in him being rooted, built up, and established cannot be contained. It literally overflows out of them. While some may think this participle to be out of place here, there's some commentators that do debate the validity of uh, Paul's authorship. One of their arguments is this seems to be kind of out of place with everything else that he's saying, but when you think about it, it's really not. This is the natural response of someone who has truly received Christ. It's no accident that this is the only one of these four participles that is in the active voice. If you remember being rooted and being built up and being established was all passive. It's something that's done to us by God alone. But this thankfulness is something that we, that we're active in, that we participate in. 
Thanksgiving is the continuous active response to God's grace, which is revealed supremely in Jesus. The Christian life is a life of thanksgiving and gratitude. As our pastor said numerous times, there is no place in Scripture for a thankless Christian. As we begin to come to a close, it's vitally, <coughs> excuse me, vitally important for us to remember that these truths apply just as much to us as they did to the original audience. And it's my prayer that we would all meditate on these verses and take them to heart. And when you do this, you'll realize that we do not live in such different times as the Colossians did. Our world constantly seeks to distract us from walking with Christ. It continually attempts to substitute other things as the object of our ultimate affection and worship. In its worldly wisdom, it laughs at the thought of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and rather insists that we must play a part in our own happiness and salvation. That is, if it admits that salvation is even possible or necessary. So how do we combat against this? We do so in the same way that Paul urges in these verses. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Remembering and meditating on how we receive Christ Jesus the Lord will impact how we walk with him as God works in us and through us, entrenching our roots deeper and deeper and building us up higher and higher, establishing us in the true faith, bringing about a sincere response of thankfulness. Every other religion in the world is a religion of works. Every other system of morality is baseless and futile. At its heart, this is the result of human pride. We substitute the truth of God for a lie, thinking we can earn his favor or somehow merit our own salvation. Even the atheist who does not believe in any God or sees no need for salvation, whether that's even possible is a topic for another day. Um, but even they have a code that they live by. The gospel is so unnatural to us in our fallen state, yet the truth is that we are all sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. There is none who does good, and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. To a completely and totally holy God, infinite in his perfections, we simply cannot measure up. We are sinners both by birth and by choice. There is no way for us to do enough good to earn favor with God. We need a mediator, a savior, someone to reconcile us to the Father, this infinitely holy and just God. But praise be to God, who has provided this mediator, the Savior for us in Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. This Jesus took on our sin, enduring the wrath of God in our place, that we might become righteous in God's sight. He became our substitute and we receive the benefit of his sacrificial work by faith. Brothers and sisters, this is where our focus needs to remain. Kristen and I are so very thankful for the gospel-centered preaching and teaching. We have had the privilege 
to sit under during our time at Fisherville. I don't think I need to tell you how much of a blessing it is to have a pastor like Ron. I got to experience him in the classroom and as a friend, and I'm thankful for all of those. Moreover, the faith, hope, and love of the people here that's so evident is a wonderful blessing and gift, and as I said before, will be sorely missed. We have shed tears of grief over having to leave such a wonderful church family. And it is our prayer that the body of Christ here at Fisherville would continue running the race well, with eyes fixed on him who is the hope of glory, not straying to the right or to the left, but standing firm on the truth of who Christ is and what he has done for all those who would receive him truly. As God continues to bless this church, which I have no doubt that he will, and as growth continues to happen, there will inevitably be new trials and struggles, issues that must be dealt with. And it goes without saying that Satan hates a healthy, vibrant, and growing church. And that he will do any, anything in his power to not only halt that growth, but to bring it to destruction. This is a reality, and it does us no favors to ignore it. If we, if we were to continue in the letter to the Colossians, we would see admonition and instruction for all aspects of the Christian life and for the conduct of spiritual warfare. <laughs> Excuse me. No matter what trials may come, we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is sovereign over all things. His word will never pass away, and the gates of hell will never prevail over his church. As we close tonight, it's my prayer for each of you, as well as myself, that as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Just as my physical walk was influenced by what I passively received from my earthly father to the point that a stranger looking out a hospital window could recognize him and me, so our spiritual walk should be influenced by the way in which we receive Christ. Because Christ is the true and perfect image of God the Father, the exact imprint of his nature, when we walk in Christ, we actually walk like his Father. By our gracious adoption as sons and daughters, our Father. As we receive Christ truly and walk in him faithfully, we slowly but surely, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, begin to bear the image of God in our own lives more completely and accurately and with more clarity. And this is the very thing we were created to do to walk like our Heavenly Father. In Jesus, we too find the hope of glory. We long for and look forward to the day when we will not only walk in him, but walk with him in heaven. And for anyone who has never truly received Christ and does not know what it means to walk in him, I pray that you would not wait, but that today would be the day.
day of salvation. That today would be the day you would see his glory, his beauty, his worth. I pray that you would trust in him by faith for your salvation. And that you would begin your walk with him. For though it is not easy, it is a glorious walk. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we can rest and take comfort in the fact that you are sovereign, that you hold us in your hand, that you sustain all things. And that ultimately, Father, your gospel will prevail. Father, I pray that we would continue to meditate on these words. that we would be rooted and built up in Christ, established in the faith, and that we would be thankful, grateful Christians. Father, I pray for each and every person here. I pray for the church at Fisherville that you would continue to shower blessings on them as they continue to walk in your will. I pray that you would guard them in faith. I pray that you would be with Pastor Brian, his family, Jonathan, the elders, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers. I pray that you would be with this church who has meant so much to us. That you would continue to guide them, bless them, and protect them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Kristen, if you could come forward, we would like to pray.